Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Ari Omey, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It is brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, Abayomi Azikawe. Uh, today is Sunday, April the 2nd, uh, 2023, and we're broadcasting live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. We well, thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to another edition of our program. Coming up later uh, in this episode, we'll feature our regular Pan-African Newswire report. Uh, we'll have dispatches on the cholera outbreak in the Republic of Mozambique and the aftermath of Cyclone Freddy. In Burundi, 13 miners have been killed as a result of a flood. We'll have details on that as well. Kenyan opposition leaders have called off additional anti-government demonstrations, and the foreign minister of Japan is scheduled to pay a visit to the People's Republic of China. In the second and third hours, we continue our focus on the 55th anniversary of the martyrdom of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. on April 4th of 1968. We'll look back on the final speech of the civil rights and anti-war leader delivered the night uh, prior to his assassination. We then review the news reports on the assassination from 1968 and the eruption of mass demonstrations and urban rebellions in more than 100 cities following the murder of Dr. King. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. Uh, we'll take our musical interlude uh, with the music of Bozi Boziana. Uh, let's listen in.
Welcome back. And you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast, this special edition of our program for uh, today, uh, Sunday, April 2nd, 2023. And we're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We just heard the music of Bozi Boziana, uh, the band uh, from the Democratic Republic of Congo playing uh, classic uh, Congolese Pan-African music from uh, the late uh, 1980s. Right now, we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment. These are some of the headlines in today's Pan-African Newswire. Weeks after massive Cyclone Freddy uh, hit Mozambique for a second time, the still-flooded country is facing a spiraling cholera outbreak that threatens to add to uh, the devastation. There were over 19,000 confirmed cases of cholera across eight of Mozambique's province as uh, as of March 27th, according to the United Nations uh, Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, a figure which had almost doubled in a week. But he uh, was likely the longest-lived cyclone ever, lasting over five weeks and hitting Mozambique twice. The tropical storm killed 165 people in Mozambique, 17 in Madagascar, 676 in Malawi. More than 530 people are still missing in Malawi two weeks later, so that country's death toll uh, could uh, well exceed 1,200 people. <coughs> Freddie made its second uh, landfall in Mozambique, Zambezi uh, province, uh, where scores of villages remain flooded and water supplies are still contaminated. At a hospital, in Quilamani, uh, in Zambezia's provincial capital, the National Institute of Health Director General Eduardo Sam Gudo Jr. reported there were 600 new confirmed cases a day in Quilamani district alone, but said that the real number may be as high as 1,000. At least 31 died of cholera in Zambezia, and over 3,200 were hospitalized between March 15th and the 29th, according to uh, the data from the Ministry of Health. Uh, cases are highest in the neighborhood of Isajua on the city's outskirts, where most residents live in bamboo or adobe mud huts and fresh water in buckets from communal wells. Flooding brought by the cyclone has exposed many of these wells to water contaminated with sewage overflow and other sources of bacteria. Cholera spreads through feces, often when it gets into drinking water. But until water pipelines ruptured and the floods uh, are repaired, uh, these wells are the only source of water for those in Eastern Europe and communities like it. For now, temporary solutions offer the only hope of stemming the outbreak. And in other news uh, taking place on the African continent, an official in Burundi uh, says the bodies of 13 gold miners have been recovered from two pits in which they were trapped uh, by flood water. Nicodeme uh, in Daha Bonyi Mana, a district administrator in the northwestern province of Sibutoke, said the miners uh, could not be saved after the pits collapsed Friday night amid torrential rainfalls. The bodies of two other miners who were missing and presumed dead have not been recovered, he said, urging 
artisanal miners to avoid pits during the rainy season. Police and other authorities yesterday unsuccessfully tried to extract the miners from the pits flooded with water from the overflowing Rugogo River. Such mining disasters are frequently reported in Burundi's northwest and northeast, where people mining illegally prefer nighttime work to escape the oversight of the authorities. Listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal, Kenyan opposition leader uh, Raleigh Odinga said earlier today that uh, he had called for a temporary halt to anti-government protest after President William Ruto urged his opponents to negotiate with him. In a move to halt brewing disenchantment, Ruto said he wants to hold talks with opponents to discuss how members of Kenya's Electoral Commission are chosen. The commission's uh, responsibilities include conducting national elections and declaring uh, the winners. The opposition has also accused the electoral body of tampering with election results and is demanding that the body give access to its computers. Odinga disputed Ruto's 2022 victory, but the country's Supreme Court upheld it. Odinga said the opposition would not hold planned demonstrations tomorrow, but warned that they would resume if the government does not resolve the issues. And uh, finally, in Asia, the Japanese foreign minister's visit to China is expected to help dispel misunderstandings and dissolve uncertainties in bilateral ties. Yasuo Fukuda, uh, Japan's former prime minister, told the Global Times in a recent exclusive interview ahead of Japan's Minister of Foreign Affairs, Yoshimasa Hayashi, upcoming visit, the official visit to China. Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesperson Mao Ning on Friday announced the visit of Hayashi on April 1st and the 2nd at the invitation of the Chinese State Counselor and Foreign Minister King Gong. And with that, that we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of our program, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in various newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, uh, just go to our website uh, at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to uh, have access to today's Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, April 2nd, uh, 2023, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, the band Love from uh, their third album entitled Forever Changes. That track was entitled The Daily Planet. And uh, this weekend, now we've been commemorating uh, the upcoming 55th anniversary of the martyrdom of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. It occurred on April 4th of 1968. Uh, Dr. King uh, was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee. On uh, March the 18th, uh, Dr. King had been invited to address the community in Memphis, uh, which was under siege as a result of a sanitation worker strike uh, that had met a very, very harsh and repressive response uh, from the the city administration headed by Henry Loeb. Uh, Loeb, of course, a longtime segregationist, even supporter of uh, the Ku Klux Klan. And, of course, um, Dr. King uh, spoke to approximately 6,000 people in Memphis, and then he agreed to return. Uh, He came back on March the 28th, the day in which there had been a general strike called in Memphis, uh, which Dr. King had actually urged uh, during his previous uh, visit. Uh, That day, uh, the march uh, erupted into violence. And, of course, it was broken up by the police at the order of the city administration. Uh, Dr. King was blamed uh, for the violence that took place in Memphis on that day, involving several thousand people who were marching in support of the sanitation workers' strike. And, of course, uh, this further fueled uh, the alienation between uh, the Democratic uh, administration of uh, Lyndon Bain Johnson, leading Democratic senators, Uh, who openly attacked uh, Dr. King on the floor of the Senate. Of course, uh, Dr. King returned uh, to uh, Memphis on April 3rd. Uh, They, of course, were in court uh, seeking to lift an injunction uh, prohibiting a demonstration uh, in uh, the city of Memphis. And uh, there was a mass rally on April 3rd. Dr. King addressed that rally. That, of course, uh, was his last uh, speech. Uh, his last will and testament. We're going to hear uh, that speech in its entirety, uh, delivered on the evening of April 3rd of 1968 in uh, Memphis, Tennessee. Thank you very kindly, my friends. As I listen to Ralph Abernathy and his eloquent and generous introduction, and uh, then thought about myself, I wondered who he was talking about. (laughs) It's always good to have your closest friend and associate to say something good about you. And Ralph Abernathy is the best friend that I have in the world. I'm delighted to see each of you here tonight in spite of a storm warning. You reveal that you are determined to go on anyhow. 
something is happening in Memphis, something is happening in our world. And you know, if I was standing at the beginning of time with the possibility of taking a kind of general and panoramic view of the whole of human history up to now, and the Almighty said to me, Martin Luther King, which age would you like to live in? I would take my mental flight by Egypt, and I would watch God's children in their magnificent trek from the dark dungeons of Egypt through or rather across the Red Sea through the wilderness on toward the Promised Land. And in spite of its magnificence, I wouldn't stop there. I would move on by Greece and take my mind to Mount Olympus. And I would see Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, Euripides, and Aristophanes assemble around the Parthenon. And I would watch them around the Parthenon as they discussed the great and eternal issues of reality, but I wouldn't stop there. I would go on even to the great heyday of the Roman Empire, and I would see developments around there through various emperors and leaders, but I wouldn't stop there. I would even come up to the day of the Renaissance and get a quick picture of all that the Renaissance did for the cultural and aesthetic life of man, but I wouldn't stop there. I would even go by the way that the man for whom I'm named had his habitat. And I would watch Martin Luther as he tacks his 95 theses on the door at the Church of Wittenberg, but I wouldn't stop there. I would come on up even to 1863 and watch a vacillating president by the name of Abraham Lincoln finally come to the conclusion that he had to sign the Emancipation Proclamation, but I wouldn't stop there. I would even come up to the early 30s and see a man grappling with the problems of the bankruptcy of his nation and come with an eloquent cry that we have nothing to fear but fear itself, but I wouldn't stop there. Strangely enough, I would turn to the Almighty 
and say, if you allow me to live just a few years in the second half of the 20th century, I will be happy. Now, that's a strange statement to make because the world is all messed up. The nation is sick. Trouble is in the land, confusion all around. That's a strange statement. But I know somehow that only when it is dark enough can you see the stars. And I see God working in this period of the 20th century in a way that men in some strange way are responding. Something is happening in our world. The masses of people are rising up, and wherever they are assembled today, whether they are in Johannesburg, South Africa, Nairobi, Kenya, Accra, Ghana, New York City, Atlanta, Georgia, Jackson, Mississippi, or Memphis, Tennessee, the cry is always the same, we want to be free. And another reason that I'm happy to live in this period is that we have been forced to a point where we are going to have to grapple with the problems that men have been trying to grapple with through history, but the demands didn't force them to do it. Survival demands that we grapple with them. Men for years now have been talking about war and peace. But now no longer can they just talk about it. It is no longer the choice between violence and nonviolence in this world. It's nonviolence or non-existence. That is where we are today. And also in the human rights revolution, if something isn't done and done in a hurry to bring the colored peoples of the world out of their long years of poverty, their long years of hurt and neglect, the whole world is doomed. Now, I'm just happy that God has allowed me to live in this period, to see what is unfolding. And I'm happy that he's allowed me to be in Memphis. I can remember I can remember when Negroes were just going around as Ralph has said, so often scratching where they didn't itch and laughing when they were not tickled. But that day is all over. 
We mean business now, and we are determined to gain our rightful place in God's world. And that's all this whole thing is about. We aren't engaged in any negative protests and in any negative arguments with anybody. We are saying that we are determined to be men. We are determined to be people. We are saying... We are saying that we are God's children. And if we are God's children, we don't have to live like we are forced to live. Now, what does all of this mean in this great period of history? It means that we've got to stay together. We've got to stay together and maintain unity. You know, whenever Pharaoh wanted to prolong the period of slavery in Egypt, he had a favorite, favorite formula for doing it. What was that? He kept the slaves fighting among themselves. But whenever the slaves get together, something happens in Pharaoh's court, and he cannot hold the slaves in slavery, when the slaves get together, that's the beginning of getting out of slavery. Now let us maintain unity. Secondly, let us keep the issues where they are. The issue is injustice. The issue is the refusal of Memphis to be fair and honest in its dealings with its public servants who happen to be sanitation workers. Now we've got to keep attention on that. That's always the problem with a little violence. You know what happened the other day, and the press dealt only with the window breaking. I read the article. They very seldom got around to mentioning the fact that 1,300 sanitation workers are on strike and that Memphis is not being fair to them and that Mayor Loeb is in dire need of a doctor. They didn't get around to that. Now we're going to march again, and we've got to march again, in order to put the issue where it is supposed to be. force everybody to see that there are 1,300 of God's children here suffering, sometimes going hungry, going through dark and dreary nights, 
wondering how this thing is going to come out. That's the issue. And we've got to say to the nation, we know how it's coming out. For when people get caught up with that which is right and they are willing to sacrifice for it, there is no stopping point short of victory. We aren't going to let any may stop us. We are masters in our nonviolent movement in disarming police forces. They don't know what to do. I've seen them so often. I remember in Birmingham, Alabama, when we were in that majestic struggle there. We would move out of the 16th Street Baptist Church day after day. By the hundreds, we would move out, and Bull Connor would tell them to send the dogs for And they did come. But we just went before the dogs singing, ain't gonna let nobody turn me around. Bull Connor next would say, turn the fire hoses on. And as I said to you the other night, Bull Connor didn't know history. He knew a kind of physics that somehow didn't relate to the trans physics that we knew about. And that was the fact that there was a certain kind of fire that no water could put out. We went before the fire hoses. We had known water. If we were Baptists or some other denomination, we had been immersed. If we were Methodists and some others, we had been sprinkled. But we knew water. That couldn't stop us. And we just went on before the dogs, and we would look at them, and we'd go on before the water hoses, and we would look at it. And we just go on singing over my head, I see freedom in there. And then we would be thrown into paddy wagons, and sometimes we were stacked in there like sardines in a can. And they would throw us in, and old bull would say, take them off. And they did, and we would just go on in the paddy wagon singing, we shall overcome. And every now and then we'd get in jail and we'd see the jailers looking through the windows, being moved by our prayer and being moved by our words and our songs. And there was a power there which Bull Connor couldn't adjust, adjust to. And so we ended up transforming Bull into a steer and we won our struggle in Birmingham. We've got to go on in Memphis just like that. I call upon you to be with us when we go out Monday. Now about injunctions. We have an injunction and we're going into court tomorrow morning to fight this illegal, unconstitutional injunction.
All we say to America is be true to what you said on paper. If I lived in China or even Russia or any totalitarian country, maybe I could understand some of these illegal injunctions. Maybe I could understand the denial of certain basic First Amendment privileges because they haven't committed themselves to that over there. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. Somewhere I read of the freedom of press. Somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest for rights. And so just as I say we aren't going to let any dogs or water hoses turn us around, we aren't going to let any injunction turn us around. going on. We need all of you. And you know what's beautiful to me? is to see all of these ministers of the gospel. It's a marvelous picture. Who is it that is supposed to articulate the longings and aspirations of the people more than the preacher? Somehow the preacher must have a kind of fire shut up in his bones. And whenever injustice is around, he must tell it. Somehow the preacher must be an Amos who said, When God speaks, who can but prophesy? Again with Amos, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Somehow the preacher must say with Jesus, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. And he's anointed me to deal with the problems of the poor. And I want to commend the preachers under the leadership of these noble men, James Lawson, one who has been in this struggle for many years. He's been to jail for struggling. He's been kicked out of Vanderbilt University for this struggling, but he's still going on fighting for the rights of his people. Reverend Ralph Jackson, Billy Kyle, I could just go right on down the list. It's time will not permit, but I want to thank all of them. And I want you to thank them. Because so often, preachers aren't concerned about anything but themselves. And I'm always happy to see a relevant ministry. It's all right to talk about long white robes over yonder in all of its symbolism. But ultimately, people want some suits and dresses and shoes to wear down here. It's all right to talk about streets flowing with milk and honey. But God has commanded us. 
to be concerned about the slums down here and his children who can't eat three square meals a day. It's all right to talk about the new Jerusalem, but one day God's preacher must talk about the new New York, the new Atlanta, the new Philadelphia, the new Los Angeles, the new Memphis, Tennessee. This is what we have to do. Now, the other thing we'll have to do is this. Always anchor our external direct action with the power of economic withdrawal. Now, we are poor people. Individually, we are poor when you compare us with white society in America. We are poor. Never stop to get that collectively, that means all of us together, collectively we are richer than all the nations in the world with the exception of nine. Did you ever think about that? After you leave the United States, Soviet Russia, Great Britain, West Germany, France, and I can name the others, the American Negro collectively is richer than most nations of the world. We have an annual income of more than $30 billion a year, which is more than all of the exports of the United States and more than the national budget of Canada. Did you know that? That's power right there if we know how to prove it. We don't have to argue with anybody. We don't have to curse and go around acting bad with our words. We don't need any bricks and bottles. We don't need any Molotov cocktails. We just need to go around to these stores and to these massive industries in our country and say, God sent us by here to say to you that you're not treating his children right. And we come by here to ask you to make the first item on your agenda fair treatment where God's children are concerned. Now, if you are not prepared to do that, we do have an agenda that we must follow. And our agenda calls for withdrawing economic support from you. So as a result of this, we're asking you tonight to go out and tell your neighbors not to buy Coca-Cola in Memphis. Go by and tell them not to buy sealed pest milk. Tell them not to buy 
What is all the bread wonder bread? And what is all the bread come to Jesse? Tell him not to buy hearts bread. As Jesse Jackson has said up to now, only the garbage men have been feeling pain. Now we must kind of redistribute the pain. We are choosing these companies because they have been fair in their hiring policies, and we are choosing them because they can begin the process of saying they are going to support the needs and the rights of these men who are on track, and then they can move on town, downtown and tell Mayor Loeb to do what is right. Now, not only that, we've got to strengthen black institutions. I call upon you to take your money out of the banks downtown and deposit your money in Tri-State Bank. We want a bank-in movement in Memphis. Go by the Savings and Loan Association. I'm not asking you something that we don't do ourselves in SCLC. Judge Hooks and others will tell you that we have an account here in the Savings and Loan Association from the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. We are telling you to follow what we are doing. Put your money there. You have six or seven black insurance companies here in the city of Memphis. Take out your insurance there. We want to have an insurance in. Now, these are some practical things that we can do. We begin the process of building a great economic base, and at the same time, we are putting pressure where it really hurts. I ask you to follow through here. Now, let me say as I move to my conclusion. that we've got to give ourselves to this struggle until the end. Nothing would be more tragic than to stop at this point in Memphis. We've got to see it through. When we have our march, you need to be there. If it means leaving work, if it means leaving school, be there. Be concerned about your brother. You may not be on track, but either we go up together or we go down together. Let us develop a kind of dangerous unselfishness. 
One day a man came to Jesus, and he wanted to raise some questions about some vital matters of life. At points he wanted to trick Jesus and show him that he knew a little more than Jesus knew and throw him off base. Now that question could have easily ended up in a philosophical and theological debate. But Jesus immediately pulled that question from midair and placed it on the dangerous curve between Jerusalem and Jericho. And he talked about a certain man who fell among thieves. You remember that a Levite? And the priest passed by on the other side. They didn't stop to help him. And finally, a man of another race came by. He got down from his beast, decided not to be compassionate by proxy. But he got down with him, administered first aid, and helped the man in need. Jesus ended up saying this was the good man, this was the great man, because he had the capacity to project the eye into the thou and to be concerned about his brother. Now, you know, we use our imagination a great deal to try to determine why the priest and the Levite didn't stop. The times we say they were busy going to a church meeting, an ecclesiastical gathering, and they had to get on down to Jerusalem so they wouldn't be late for their meeting. At other times, we would speculate that there was a religious law that one who was engaged in religious ceremonials was not to touch a human body 24 hours before the ceremony. And every now and then we began to wonder whether maybe they were not going down to Jerusalem, or down to Jericho rather, to organize a Jericho Road Improvement Association. That's a possibility. Maybe they felt that it was better to deal with the problem from the causal root rather than to get bogged down with an individual effect. But I'm going to tell you what my imagination tells me. It's possible that those men were afraid. You see, the Jericho Road is a dangerous road. I remember when Mrs. King and I were first in Jerusalem. We rented a car and drove from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And as soon as we got on that road, I said to my wife, I can see why Jesus used this as the setting for his parable. It's a winding, meandering road. It's really conducive for ambushing. You start out in Jerusalem, which is about 1,200 miles, or rather 1,200 feet above sea level. And by the time you get down to Jericho, 15 or 20 minutes later, you are about 2,200 feet below sea level. That's a dangerous road. In the days of Jesus, it came to be known as the bloody paths. You know it's possible that the priest and the Levite 
looked over that man on the ground and wondered if the robbers were still around. Or it's possible that they felt that the man on the ground was merely faking. And he was acting like he had been robbed and hurt in order to seize them over there, love them there for quick and easy seizure. And so the first question that the priest asked, the first question that the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But then the Good Samaritan came by, and he reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? That's the question before you tonight. Not if I stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to my job? Not if I stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to all of the hours that I usually spend in my office every day and every week as a pastor? The question is not if I stop to help this man in need, what will happen to me? The question is, if I do not stop to help the sanitation workers, what will happen to them? That's the question. Let us rise up tonight with a greater readiness. Let us stand with a greater determination. And let us move on in these powerful days, these days of challenge, to make America what it ought to be. We have an opportunity to make America a better nation. And I want to thank God once more for allowing me to be here with you. You know, several years ago I was in New York City autographing the first book that I had written. And while sitting there autographing books, a demented black woman came up. The only question I heard from her was, Are you Martin Luther King? And I was looking down writing, and I said, Yes. And the next minute I felt something beating on my chest. Before I knew it, I had been stabbed by this demented woman. I was rushed to Hullam Hospital. It was a dark Saturday afternoon. That blade had gone through, and the x-rays revealed that the tip of the blade was on the edge of my aorta, the main artery. And once that's punctured, you're drowned in your own blood. That's the end of you. It came out in the New York Times the next morning that if I had merely sneezed, I would have died. Well, about four days later, they allowed me, after the operation, after my chest had been opened and the blade had been taken out, to move around in the wheelchair in the hospital. They allowed me to read some of the mail that came in, and from all over the states and the world, kind letters came in. I read a few, but one of them I will never forget. I had received one from the president and the vice president. I've forgotten what 
those telegrams said. I'd received a visit and a letter from the governor of New York, but I've forgotten what that letter said. But there was another letter that came from a little girl, a young girl, who was a student at the White Plains High School. And I looked at that letter, and I'll never forget it. It said simply, Dear Dr. King, I am a ninth grade student at the White Plains High School. She said, while it should not matter, I would like to mention that I'm a white girl. I read in the paper of your misfortune and of your suffering, and I read that if you had sneezed, you would have died. I'm simply writing you to say that I'm so happy that you didn't sneeze. And I want to say tonight, I want to say tonight that I too am happy that I didn't sneeze because if I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been around here in 1960 when students all over the South started sitting in at lunch counters. And I knew that as they were sitting in, they were really standing up for the best in the American dream and taking the whole nation back to those great wells of democracy which were dug deep by the founding fathers in the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been around here in 1961 when we decided to take a ride for freedom and ended segregation in interstate travel. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been around here in 1962. The Negroes in Albany, Georgia, decided to straighten their backs up. And whenever men and women straighten their backs up, they are going somewhere because a man can't ride your back unless it is bent. If I had sneezed, If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have been here in 1963. The black people of Birmingham, Alabama, aroused the conscience of this nation and brought into being the Civil Rights Bill. If I had sneezed, I wouldn't have had a chance later that year in August to try to tell America about a dream that I had had. If I had sneezed. I wouldn't have been down in Selma, Alabama, to see the great movement there if I had sneezed. I wouldn't have been in Memphis to see a community rally around those brothers and sisters who are suffering. I'm so happy that I didn't sneeze. And they were telling me. Now it doesn't matter now. It really doesn't matter what happens now. I left Atlanta this morning, and as we got started on the plane, there were six of us. The pilot said over the public address system, we are sorry for the delay. But we have Dr. Martin Luther King on the plane. And to be sure that all of the bags were checked. And to be sure that nothing would be wrong on the plane, 
we had to check out everything carefully, and we've had the plane protected and guarded all night. And then I got into Memphis, and some began to say the threats, or talk about the threats that were out, or what would happen to me from some of our sick white brothers. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now, because I've been to the mountaintop. I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, Dr. King delivering his last uh, speech on the evening of April 3rd of 1968. And uh, we're going to take a break. We'll be back uh, with reports on uh, the assassination as they unfolded uh, the following day on April 4th.
The uh, music of Howard Tate uh, with the track entitled Stop. And uh, the following day on April 4th, uh, after 6 p.m., uh, Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated standing on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee. Uh, we have um, accumulated uh, news reports as they occurred uh, on that fateful evening. Uh, we're going to replay uh, excerpts from news reports from April 4th of 1968. From the WCCO Radio News Bulletin, this bulletin just in, Dr. Martin Luther King was shot outside a Memphis hotel this afternoon. His condition was not immediately known. Once again, Dr. Martin Luther King was shot outside a Memphis hotel this afternoon. His condition was not immediately known. Stay tuned to WCCO Radio for further details. The 620 Sports is brought to you by Swanberg and C.C. Buick. We'll have the weather with Dick Enroth in just a moment. Further details on the Dr. Martin Luther King incident now. King was shot outside a Memphis hotel this afternoon. His condition was not known immediately. Police put out a wanted bulletin for what they described as a young white male, well-dressed. They said the man was seen running from a brick building across the street. The shooting took place near the Lorraine Hotel in Memphis, where King's car was parked. Police said King was sitting in his car when the shot was fired. Officers raced to the scene and surrounded the car. Other units roared into the area and surrounded the hotel. Early reports indicate police had recovered the weapon used in that shooting. King was in Memphis, Tennessee, leading garbage strike marches. His march uh, last Wednesday burst into violence that left one dead, 62 injured, and 200 arrested and he had planned another mass march for next Monday. Police said the assailant dropped the weapon while running down the main street about one block from the shooting. They said the assailant apparently jumped into a late model car after the shooting and sped away. The Dr. Martin Luther King shot outside a Memphis hotel this afternoon and as yet his condition not immediately known. Stay tuned to CCO Radio for further developments on that story. Now the weather, the weather story, official okay. weather. this program for a CBS Radio Net Alert Bulletin. This is Douglas Edwards, CBS News, New York. Civil rights leader Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. was shot at a downtown Memphis hotel shortly before 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time this evening. A direct report now from Memphis, Frank Gardner of WREC reporting. Dr. Martin Luther King has been shot and wounded, possibly critically wounded, in Memphis, Tennessee this evening. Police describe a young, well-dressed, medium-built white male driving a white Mustang, shot at and wounded, possibly critically wounded, Dr. Martin Luther King at his motel room in the downtown area of Memphis this evening. Dr. King reportedly was hit in the face. The extent of his injuries are not known at this moment, but one observer at the hospital, at St. Joseph Hospital here in Memphis, told this reporter Dr. King apparently had been hit and was wounded badly. He was hit in the face, and the last report was being given oxygen. He entered the hospital emergency room with his face covered with a towel. The exact extent of his injuries not known at this time. Apparently, the man responsible for the shooting of Dr. King here in Memphis this evening has not been apprehended. This is Frank Gardner in Memphis. A hospital spokesman has told CBS News that the condition of Dr. Martin Luther King is critical. This is CBS News in New York. This is your good neighbor to the Northwest with Studio St. Paul, Minneapolis at 830 WCCO. Once again, Dr. Martin Luther King was shot outside a Memphis hotel this afternoon. His condition now reported as critical. Stay tuned to WCCO Radio for further details. 
We'll have music on the go coming up in just five minutes. Civil rights leader Martin Luther King has been shot in a downtown Memphis hotel. Police say that King was removed from the hotel where he was shot and taken by ambulance to a Memphis hospital. No immediate word on the extent of his injuries. However, CBS Radio just a short time ago reported his condition as critical. And that shooting occurred shortly before 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Police put out a uh, wanted bulletin for what they described as a young white male, well-dressed. And they said the man was seen running from a brick building just across the street. That shooting, by the way, took place near the Lorraine Hotel in Memphis, where King's car was parked. Police say that King was sitting in his car when the shot was fired. The officers raced to the scene and surrounded the car. Other units then surrounded the hotel. And early reports indicate the police had recovered the weapon used in the shooting. The man apparently dropped the weapon after running and then jumping into a late-model car and speeding away. So that is the latest word on the uh, Dr. Martin Luther King shooting in downtown Memphis, Tennessee. And we'll keep you right up to date on that story. We've had so many late-breaking developments here in the last week. And you'll hear all the news, complete, authoritative, and concise, right here on 830 WCCO. Checking the tread depths on tires, chemically analyzing transmission fluids, and determining the accuracy of speedometer. Now this late bulletin from the WCCO Radio News Bureau. Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., 1964 Nobel Peace Prize winner and America's leading exponent of nonviolence in the civil rights struggle, was shot to death Thursday night according to Assistant Police Chief Henry Lux. This just into our WCCO Radio News Bureau. Dr. Lark Martin Luther King apparently shot in the back of the neck while standing on his hotel balcony late today in Memphis, Tennessee. Police rushed to the civil rights leader and then rushed him to a hospital in critical condition. And the word just in now that Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., Nobel Peace Prize winner, has died in Memphis, Tennessee. Keep tuned to WCCO Radio for further developments. The time now is 20 minutes after 7 o'clock. In the Twin Cities, we have 33. We interrupt this program for a CBS Radio Net Alert bulletin. This is Gary Shepard, CBS News, New York. Civil rights leader Dr. Martin Luther King died tonight in Memphis, Tennessee, after being shot in the face by an unknown assailant on the balcony in front of a downtown hotel a short while ago. Associated Press says Assistant Police Chief Henry Lux of Memphis confirmed Dr. King's death. Reverend Dr. King, winner of the Nobel Peace Prize, was 39 years old. He was in Memphis to lead demonstrations in sympathy with a prolonged strike by municipal garbage men, most of them Negro. Police at last report were still looking for a young white male who was seen running from the scene of the shooting and reportedly dropped a weapon in flight. Frank Gardner, a reporter for... CBS station WREC in Memphis speaks of talking with a surgeon at the hospital who has been in contact moments before with an associate of Dr. King who is in the pediatrics division of the hospital. The surgeon, who was a friend of the other doctor, said they told him that Dr. King died about 15 minutes ago. We repeat, Dr. Martin Luther King, America's nonviolent civil rights leader, shot and killed tonight in Memphis, Tennessee. Gary Shepard, CBS News, New York. At this time, we resume the regular program schedule from other studios on this CBS Radio Net Alert station. You can take them out of the country. The news is breaking fast, and you're right there with CBS Radio Net Alert and WCCO Radio, where you hear history as it happens. 
Unfortunately, some rather bad history tonight. We'll keep you uh, abreast of late developments here on CCO Radio. 23 minutes now past 7 in the Twin Cities, 30 degrees. Simon and Garfunkel. Dr. Martin Luther King was shot to death in Memphis tonight. The news of King's death was announced by Assistant Police Chief Henry Lux. King was shot as he stood on the balcony of a Memphis motel where he was staying. Police say two unidentified men were taken into custody several blocks from where King was shot. The executive vice president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the Reverend Andrew Young, says the shot hit King in the neck and the lower part of his face, and Young added, he didn't say a word, he didn't move. King was rushed to St. Joseph's Hospital immediately after the shooting, and he was declared dead at the hospital a short time later. Late news from Memphis, Tennessee this evening. Some very, very bad news. In uh, the sports scene tonight, from Studio St. Paul, Minneapolis at 830, this is WCCO. And now, the world tonight with Gary Shepard. This is Gary Shepard, CBS News, New York. Civil rights leader Dr. Martin Luther King died tonight in Memphis, Tennessee, after being shot in the face by an unknown assailant on the balcony in front of a downtown hotel a short while ago. Associated Press says Assistant Police Chief Henry Lux of Memphis confirmed Dr. King's death. Reverend Dr. King, winner of the Nobel Peace Prize, was 39 years old. He was in Memphis to lead demonstrations in sympathy with a prolonged strike by municipal garbage men, most of them Negro. Police at last report were still looking for a young white male who was seen running from the scene of the shooting and reportedly dropped a weapon in flight. Frank Gardner, a reporter for CBS station WREC in Memphis, speaks of talking with a surgeon at the hospital who has been in contact moments before with an associate of Dr. King who is in the pediatrics division of the hospital. The surgeon, who is a friend of the other doctor, said they told him that Dr. King died about 15 minutes ago. We repeat, Dr. Martin Luther King, America's nonviolent civil rights leader, shot and killed tonight in Memphis, Tennessee. Gary Shepard, CBS News, New York. The world tonight will continue in a moment. We interrupt this program for a CBS Radio Net Alert Bulletin. This is Daniel Shore, CBS News, Washington. The Reverend Martin Luther King has been shot and killed in Memphis, shot as he stood alone on the balcony of his hotel, and he died soon afterward in the hospital. We are now standing by at the White House for a statement expected momentarily from President Johnson. And while we wait for him to appear in the rain-swept street in front of the White House, Delaying his own arrival at a dinner for congressional Democrats, we will give you some of the details. The police in Memphis have issued a bulletin for a young white man who was seen darting out of the building across the street from the hotel where the Reverend Martin Luther King was staying. Dr. King's chauffeur said that he was standing on the street when Dr. King strolled out onto the second floor balcony moments before he was to leave for dinner at the home of the Reverend Billy Kyles, a Negro minister. Jones, the chauffeur, said that King told me to stop the car. He was ready to go to dinner. I said to the chauffeur, it's cold outside, Dr. King. Put your top coat on. And he said, okay, I will, and he smiled. And those were his last words. I heard the gun, said the chauffeur. Dr. King fell on his back. He had been looking directly at the man. The identity of the man is still not known. There have been reports that two white persons have been picked up. It is not clear from these wire service reports whether they had any connection with the assassination. 
the Reverend Andrew Young, who is the Executive Vice President of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which was headed by Dr. King, and which was planning a march on Washington on April 22nd on behalf of poor people, said that the shot hit Dr. King in the neck and the lower right part of his face. Dr. Young said he didn't say a word, he didn't move. Immediately after the shooting, the civil rights leader was rushed to St. Joseph's Hospital, where he was declared dead a short time later. Police armed with rifles have blocked the front entrance to the hospital to hold back a crowd which gathered there quickly. Dr. King had come to Memphis only yesterday to take charge of the continuing demonstrations in support of the city's striking garbage collectors. A march which Dr. King had led last Thursday erupted into rioting in which one person was killed. And now Dr. King had planned another march for next Monday. National Guard troops have rushed to Memphis to quell last week's riot, but they have not been on hand since. Governor Ellington has been alerted that Dr. King has was shot, and he was conferring with Memphis authorities and state officials. No decision was announced immediately on whether the National Guard would be returned to Memphis. As we reported previously, the police in Memphis have put out a wanted bulletin for a young white male, well-dressed, who was seen running from a brick building across the street from the hotel where Dr. King's car was parked at the time of the shooting. It is now reported that police have been chasing a late-model blue car through Memphis and north to nearby Millington. They reported a civilian in a car with a citizen's band radio had closed on the car and had opened fire on it. The microphones have been set up in front of the door to the White House, and a White House aide has said that President Johnson will come out momentarily to make what is expected to be his statement on what is perhaps the most tragic assassination since the assassination of President Kennedy. We were speaking earlier to the office of the SCLC, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference here in Washington, which was planning the Poor People's March on Washington for April 2nd where they reported that they were in a state of such shock that they would not comment immediately. Stokely Carmichael, the head of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, had planned a news conference to, for tomorrow, first canceled, and now he says he will go through with the news conference. This is perhaps one of the acts which may help to weld together the divided Negro community. The reports still coming in from them to say that the shot fired at Dr. King apparently came from a brick building across the street from the hotel. There were three white males in the car which the police have been pursuing. More than a hundred police and sheriff's deputies have sealed off a five-square block area of Memphis around the hotel. Hundreds of spectators have been flooding around the cordon. Here in Washington, the FBI says that it is, it is investigating the shooting at the specific request of Attorney General Ramsey Clark. The reports coming in from Memphis indicate the Negro community in a state of shock. The Reverend W. Herbert Berter said, Oh my God, oh my God. In Atlanta, the wife of Dr. King prepared to fly to Memphis immediately. I was just told he had been shot, she said. The report I got was in the shoulder, and he was in serious condition. Later, it turned out that Dr. King had died in the hospital. It was, incidentally, the same hospital where James Meredith was taken 
after his ambush wounding in Hernando, Mississippi, south of Memphis in June 1965. Dr. King, as we said, was in Memphis to lead a massive march on Monday to prove, in the face of last week's riot in Memphis, that he could conduct a peaceful march. His attorneys had gone to court on Thursday to challenge a federal court ban on that march. They said that his march would be orderly and peaceful. The arguments which were being heard by U.S. District Judge Bailey Brown had continued late into the day. At the request of the city, Judge Brown had issued a temporary restraining order preventing Dr. King, his associates, or other outsiders from staging a march in Memphis. A demonstration led by Dr. King a week ago caused violence or resulted in one death, 62 injuries, and more than 270 arrests. The first comments from the administration here in Washington has come from Vice President Hubert Humphrey. He said tonight that the assassination of Dr. King brings shame to our country. He predicted that the slaying of the civil rights leader will bring new strength to the cause for which Dr. King had fought. Vice President said, and we quote his statement, Martin Luther King's death is a tragedy and a sorrow to his family and to our nation. The criminal act that took his life brings shame to our country. An apostle of nonviolence has been the victim of violence. The cause for which he marched and worked will find new strength. The blight of discrimination, poverty, and neglect must be erased from America. An America of full freedom, full and equal opportunity shall be his living memorial. That is a statement of Vice President Humphrey. We are expecting now a statement from President Johnson. That statement, we were told, will come in about two minutes from now. As we have reported, the Reverend Martin Luther King has been fatally shot in Memphis. And tonight... With a first statement already issued by Vice President Humphrey, President Johnson has delayed his departure for a Democratic congressional dinner in order to make a statement on his own behalf. The President is scheduled tonight to leave for Honolulu by way of California, where tomorrow he is to confer with former President Eisenhower. In a period of rapid surprises and shocks, this is the latest to disrupt the schedule of the President and, his, and the schedules of many of us. The lights glare on the door of the White House. Presidential news assistant Robert Fleming has said that momentarily the president is expected to make a statement. The microphones are set up in the rain. The reporters are waiting. And soon we expect to hear the voice of the president. President Johnson had known Dr. King. They had seen each other often. He had once advised him at a news conference that it would not be wise for him to prepare this march on Washington. It appears now that there is some delay in the president's statement. We will return to hear the president. Meanwhile... This is Daniel Shore, CBS News, Washington. 
At this time, we resume the regular program schedule from other studios on this CBS Radio Net Alert station. This is your good neighbor to the Northwest with Studio St. Paul, Minneapolis at 830 WCCO. This is Douglas Edwards, CBS News, New York. We now switch you to Washington. This is Daniel Shore, CBS News, Washington. We are awaiting momentarily a statement by President Johnson at the White House on the fatal shooting of Dr. Martin Luther King in Memphis. Dr. King was shot as he stood on a hotel balcony as he was preparing to go out for dinner. At the White House, the microphones have been set up, there are floodlights on the door, and President Johnson is now about to appear. America is shocked and saddened by the brutal slaying tonight of Dr. Martin Luther King. I ask every citizen to reject the blind violence that has struck Dr. King, who lived by nonviolence. I pray that his family can find comfort in the memory of all he tried to do for the land he loved so well. I have just uh, conveyed the sympathy of Ms. Johnson myself to his widow, Mrs. King. I know that every American of goodwill joins me in mourning the death of this outstanding leader and in praying for peace and understanding throughout this land. We can achieve nothing by lawlessness and divisiveness among the American people. It's only by joining together and only by working together can we continue to move toward equality and fulfillment for all of our people. I hope that all Americans tonight will search their hearts as they ponder this most tragic incident. I have canceled my plans for the evening. I am postponing my trip to Hawaii until tomorrow. Thank you. President Johnson speaking from the White House. The plan that he canceled was his plan to attend a Democratic congressional dinner here in Washington tonight. And as you heard, he will delay his trip to Hawaii tomorrow, but apparently still intends to go to Honolulu for his meeting with American leaders coming in from Saigon. That was the President of the United States on the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King. Daniel Shore, CBS News, Washington. Welcome back. And uh, that was... Um, series of uh, news reports uh, from April 4th of 1958, including a brief statement uh, from the then President uh, Lyndon Johnson, who in fact um, had uh, been highly critical of Dr. King uh, over the last uh, year prior to his assassination, due uh, heavily in part uh, to his position in opposition to the war in Vietnam. And also, as mentioned in the news report, uh, the Poor People's Campaign, which was scheduled to take place later that month. Uh, The following day, April 5th, of course, uh, was a tumultuous day in the United States. Uh, Mass demonstrations and rebellions erupted across uh, the U.S. Let's listen to some of the reports from April 5th of 1968. This is Douglas Edwards, CBS News in New York, with a special report on Martin Luther King, The Aftermath. This is the day after Martin Luther King died, and the American Negro community is clearly angry, often uncontrollably angry, over his murder. 
In the CBS newsroom in New York, it's difficult to keep track of all the cities where sporadic violence has occurred in Negro sections since the bullet of the unknown white gunman cut down the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King in Memphis, Tennessee, yesterday. Let's begin this special report with a look at those places where the disturbances seem most severe. The CBS radio affiliate in Chicago, WBBM, reports five people dead from burns and bullet wounds in an outbreak of arson, sniping, and looting, mainly on the Negro West Side. CBS newsman Jed Duval saw the Chicago story unfold today. It began this morning in Chicago when thousands of Negro schoolchildren failed to show up for classes and apparent reaction to the slaying of Dr. King. And now it has come to this. The incessant and urgent chatter heard on the two-way radio of a fire engine parked in the heart of the burning and looting on Chicago's west side. Perhaps half the fire engines in this city are out fighting fires in a 16-block area. Through the day, the children who stayed out of school roamed the large, dismal, crowded black sections of Chicago. More and more often through the early afternoon, windows of stores were broken. Police were challenged and taunted. During the evening rush hour, it became a full-blown riot. Looting reports came in one on top of another. On Warren Street, we watched a young man carrying a shopping bag stuffed with fresh meat, steaks. He stumbled, spilling the bag to the pavement, nearly at the foot of a police officer. Neither the officer nor the looter paid any attention to the other. The loot was scooped up, and the youth walked away. Restaurants and stores throughout the city closed early. Many office workers, apparently sensing trouble, went home in mid-afternoon. Shortly after dark, the olive drab of the Illinois National Guard was first seen on the streets in the riot area. 6,000 guardsmen had been alerted during the afternoon as the vandalism and looting reached alarming proportions. By the time Mayor Daley was on television appealing for calm and order, several buildings on West Madison Street were ablaze. Countless scores of stores all over the city had been looted. One factor on the side of the police is the cool weather. Chicago expects lows in the 20s tonight, and that might help. It's much colder than it will be in July. Jed Duval, CBS News, Chicago. Police in Detroit report an 18-year-old Negro youth was shot and killed tonight while being arrested with 19 other youths for what the police describe as looting. For the general picture in Detroit, site of the worst riot in the nation's history last summer, here's Jim McQuarrie of CBS radio affiliate WJR. Listening to police radios here in Detroit, one is jerked backward in time to the humid July days of last year when the nation's worst riot was in progress. The significant difference this time, the city police, state police, and National Guardsmen are on the job at the very beginning. Last night, Detroit, like all American cities, was too numb to act or react to news of Dr. King's death. Today, some overreaction. At mid-morning, the first violent acts were reported as small gangs of youths roamed the still riot-scarred sections of Detroit, throwing bricks, bottles, and rocks through windows. The activity was unorganized, and there were no injuries at that time. Early this morning, squads of state troopers moved into Detroit to beef up the city police. Detroit Mayor Jerome Cavanaugh declared a state of emergency this afternoon and clamped a curfew of 8 p.m. to 5 a.m. on the city. Sales of liquor and gasoline were stopped. At this hour, one accidental shooting in suburban Highland Park as police were arresting looters. There have been three non-fatal shootings, one policeman injured, and four civilians. No details are being released other than the cold statistics. Governor Romney flew into Detroit late this afternoon. Tonight, he and Mayor Kavanaugh toured Detroit and both agreed that the preventive police and National Guard effort has been successful in buttoning down large-scale violence at least up to this point in time. 
There is still the weekend to come. This is Jim McQuarrie in Detroit. Some of the worst trouble of the day occurred in Washington, D.C., the very heart of the nation. Tonight, the White House and the Capitol are surrounded by federal troops. They were brought in on the orders of President Johnson. For a late report on the situation in Washington, we go to CBS newsman Tony Sargent. At least 4,000 National Guard and federal troops are in this uneasy town tonight, and more stand ready. Most are equipped with M-16 rifles, helmets, and gas masks. Some tanks have been brought in. 1,000 city police are on duty. In many of these streets, the troops and police are the only visible figures, but in others, looters still roam, adding to the so far uncounted number of items hauled from broken store windows in this town starting as early as midday, as close as two blocks from the White House. At least 100 fires have been ignited. Several are burning out of control at this hour, but overall, the fires are diminishing. One just opposite me, here in the Negro part of town, is now being brought gradually under control by Washington firefighters. Hey, how you doing? This is James Lewis. Good. Right. Police report having made more than 600 arrests, with over half these still in custody. Three deaths have been reported so far. Walter Washington, the mayor of this city, imposed a curfew at 5.30. As that curfew fell, thousands of motorists were choking the streets, heading towards suburban homes, weekend holidays, or just outward for the sake of it. The tourists have also been leaving in droves. Airlines report jammed ticket counters. One thing they came here for has been nipped in the bud by these riots. The annual Cherry Blossom Festival that would have climaxed this weekend has been canceled entirely. And even the opening day baseball game, originally set for Monday, now has been postponed at least one day. Tony Sargent, CBS News, in the riot area of Washington. Memphis, Tennessee is, of course, the focal point. The past 24 hours of tragedy and the ensuing violence began there. And for a late report from the scene, here is CBS News reporter Ed Rabel. While other American cities are seething with unrest, Memphis, the center of tension following the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., has thus far been spared major outbreaks of violence. There are different explanations for the lack of violence here. Police say their show of force is responsible, while Negro leaders credit their influence in the Negro community as the deciding factor. Despite all this, Memphis has had problems. Frank Holloman, the director of public safety in Memphis, made this statement earlier today. The looting and sniping and arson activities in Memphis has tapered off. It has lessened, although there is some sporadic uh, activity still going on at the present time. Reports of sporadic looting and rioting are still coming in tonight, but a curfew enforced by 4,000 National Guardsmen and police tactical units is generally being obeyed, and for the most part, Memphis is calm. Ed Rabel, CBS News, Memphis. The nation's first major riot since World War II took place in Watts, the Negro district of Los Angeles. But that area is generally quiet tonight, as we hear from CBS News correspondent Bill Stout. One surprise in this day of anguish and turmoil was the reaction in Watts, the Negro ghetto of Los Angeles, scene of the first of the big city riots. A surprise because, so far at least, there has been virtually no trouble. Several schools were dismissed early, some before noon, and thousands of young people crowded the streets and the sidewalks and the parks, but there were no riots, 
no looting, no cars overturned. An incident here and there, to be sure, but nothing like the bloodbath of three years ago. Partly that's due to the restraint of news people and police. Unlike the riot time of 1965, this situation brought no rush of armed officers and cameramen and reporters into the middle of the ghetto. Several investigations since then, from Watts to Harlem and Newark, have produced evidence that news coverage alone can add to the trouble. But this time, the news teams held back, the police held back, and Negro leaders, militants and moderates alike, moved in to try to head off the trouble. So far, thanks to the calming elements and to the people themselves, there has been little or no trouble, though of course it could change in a matter of minutes. Other effects in this area? Senator Eugene McCarthy canceled the rest of his California and Oregon campaign schedule. He'll return to Washington in the morning. And looking ahead to the Oscars, the Academy Awards ceremony Monday evening, four Negro stars have canceled out. Sidney Poitier, Diane Carroll, Sammy Davis Jr., and Louis Armstrong. But all this is precautionary. So far, no violence. Bill Stout, CBS News, Los Angeles. National Guardsmen were also on alert tonight, or states of emergency declared, in Philadelphia, in Nashville, in the state of Mississippi. The Philadelphia story at last report was only isolated vandalism and scuffling between black and white teenagers, although it's a sad commentary on the passage of Martin Luther King to hear ourselves saying only isolated vandalism. In New York City, it's unexpectedly quiet in the Negro quarters such as Harlem or Brooklyn's Bedford-Stuyvesant, but in the Times Square area, crowds of Negroes were reported on the street, smashing windows and looting inside them. The day after Martin Luther King was murdered started with lingering unrest in the nation's Negro ghettos. As it proceeded, there were events sufficient to keep Negro reaction at a fever pitch. Dramatically, the center of attention was still in Memphis, where King's body still lay, and where his top assistant, the Reverend Ralph Abernathy, spoke over him in a memorial service. I am the resurrection and the light, saith the Lord. I am the resurrection and the life, saith the Lord. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Reverend Abernathy, successor to Martin Luther King at the head of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and the crowds shuffling past King's coffin. Abernathy and the crowds followed King's coffin to the airport, where a New York newsman, Tony Brunton of WCBS, recorded Abernathy as he sought to restrain the mourning crowd. We have pledged to you that we are going to carry his work forth. Now let us not do anything at this particular time that will discredit his life. He lives so nobly. We shall overcome. We Crowd moving back now, away from the under the wing of the aircraft to the request of the Reverend Abernathy. We 
National Guardsmen, fixed bayonets, behind them helmeted city policemen with shotguns, submachine guns, and rifles, pushing the crowd back from time to time, asking them to move back for their own protection, as the police said. Now they have moved back at the request of the Reverend Ralph Abernathy, man who will be taking over from Dr. King as leader of the Southern Christian Conference. He asked them to move back. On the plane, chartered incidentally by New York Senator Robert Kennedy, was a grieving widow waiting to escort her husband's body back home to Atlanta. There, there were more Keening followers at the airport and still more at a downtown funeral parlor where the body was taken to await the funeral. It will probably be next Tuesday with King's father, the Reverend Martin Luther King Sr., presiding. Back in Memphis, there was still the hunt for the assassin. No one was reported in custody, but law enforcement officials were confident that someone soon would be. Confidence expressed by U.S. Attorney General Ramsey Clark who quickly flew to Memphis from Washington to announce the full resources of the FBI were behind local and state policemen. Clark saw no evidence of a conspiracy. Police have an alarm out for one man, dark hair, medium build, between 26 and 32 years old, and, of course, white. As it was for the average citizen, this was also an upsetting day for President Johnson. There were the necessary rituals proclaiming Sunday a national day of mourning, and ordering all flags on U.S. facilities down to half-staff until King is buried. But the day had deeper, more somber meanings for Mr. Johnston. CBS News White House correspondent Robert Pierpoint sums up the day from the presidential viewpoint. Tonight from the front lawn of the White House, he could look one direction and see the dark smoke from the fires billowing overhead, another direction to the red glow of the fires themselves. From the back lawn, he could see the silent soldiers with their so far silent guns. For a president who has done more than any other in recent history for the Negro people, it was a bitter sight at the end of a dismal day. President Johnson sensed the danger last night as soon as word came of Dr. King's death, and he moved to avert it. By dawn, he had a dozen civil rights leaders moving toward the White House for a midday meeting with top administration and political leaders. The president pleaded for calm, and they agreed, but told him action was needed as well. Action long delayed to bring the Negro Americans into their full heritage. The president then announced he would speak to a joint session of Congress Monday night. We must move with urgency and with resolve and with new energy in the Congress and in the courts and in the White House and the State House and the city halls of the nation. Wherever there is leadership, political leadership, leadership in the churches, in the homes, in the schools, in the institutions of higher learning. Until we do overcome. Late in the afternoon, after the civil rights leaders had left, President Johnson announced he had canceled his trip to Hawaii to plan Vietnam's strategy. Instead, General Westmoreland is flying to Washington. Meantime, the violence and the arson and the looting worsened to the point where a saddened president was finally forced to call in federal troops to protect the nation's capital from embittered fellow Americans whom he had tried to help. Robert Fearpoint, CBS News, at the White House.
On the state level, President Johnson was emulated almost to a carbon copy by a man many insist is still a potential Republican candidate for the White House, New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller. Rockefeller appeared on statewide radio and television tonight. He officially proclaimed Sunday a state day of mourning, and he ordered flags on state facilities flown at half-staff. He also announced he'd send a special message to the legislature in Albany next Monday, urging swift passage of social welfare bills, saying Americans must redeem their honor not with words, but with deeds. There will be fighting in our streets so long as there is fighting in our hearts. The black citizens can pay no tribute to this man of peace with bricks or guns, only with courage and dignity that he proudly expected from his people. And the white citizens can pay no tribute to this man of peace merely by weeping upon his death, only by honoring at last and in full, the principles of brotherhood for which he gave his life. I shall send to the state legislature this Monday a special message urging that such deeds quickly become law. There already is before the legislature a series of measures vitally affecting the lives of all our Negro citizens, jobs and health, housing, education and training. The enactment of these measures will give witness to our profound vow, our vow not merely to talk, but to act, so that Martin Luther King's dream of America becomes the life of America. Robert Kennedy interrupted his campaign for the Democratic presidential nomination today, but he did keep a speaking engagement at the Civic Club in Cleveland, not to speak about politics, but instead to denounce the senseless violence that struck Martin Luther King down. Victims of the violence are black and white, rich and poor, young and old, famous and unknown. They are most important of all human beings whom other human beings loved and needed. No one, no matter where he lives or what he does, can be certain who next will suffer from some senseless act of bloodshed. And yet it goes on and on and on in this country of ours. Why? In another part of town, Cleveland's Negro mayor, Carl Stokes, was eulogizing Martin Luther King at a memorial service. You can kill a man, but you cannot kill an idea. And the idea and the ideals for which Dr. Martin Luther King stood, for which he lived, and for which he died, will continue to live in this country, will continue to live in this city. And despite the sorrow upon, under which all of us today feel so heavy, there will on the morrow be a resurgence of the confidence that he was right and that we will overcome. Like many another public official today, Cleveland's Mayor Carl Stokes had tears visible in his eyes 
as he stood to eulogize the late Reverend Martin Luther King. What comes next? The main moves are probably with President Johnson when he speaks to Congress next Monday night. What will he call for? Another reporter on the CBS News White House beat, correspondent Dan Rather, has some thoughts. What the president wants to propose to Congress Monday is a great leap forward for social justice. An open housing bill, certainly. But it is spelt here there must be more than that. Mr. Johnson has been talking to civil rights leaders by the dozens, white and black, but mostly black, in the White House, by telephone, and through intermediaries. The black leaders have many suggestions. Most cost money, much money, and that's the hang-up. Whitney Young, director of the National Urban League, for example, has revived the idea of a domestic Marshall Plan, a huge spending program in decaying urban areas, jobs and housing on an unprecedented scale for the black poor. Caught in the fiscal vice formed by spiraling war costs on one side and skyrocketing deficits on the other, Mr. Johnson's options are few. Quick passage of the open housing bill and a stepped-up program for jobs cost the least. They are likely to get the heaviest emphasis in the Monday speech to Congress. Dan Rather, CBS News, the White House. The wide range of reaction to Dr. King's death generally had one element in common, emotion, indicating this was one of those momentous incidents that hit most of us where we really live. Consider two statements from polar extremes. One from Jacqueline Kennedy in New York, who herself lost a husband to an assassin's bullet. The president's widow says she weeps for Mrs. King and her children and prays we'll now find more room in our hearts for love and justice. Mrs. Kennedy makes it difficult for us to sit passively in self-righteous condemnation of King's assassin when she points out, some people would never kill, but even to speak of another with hatred is the same and causes death. The former First Lady also adds, When will our country learn that to live by the sword is to perish by the sword? This in contrast to black power militant Stokely Carmichael, who in Washington today said, White America declared war on black America last night. As Carmichael saw it, there is no need for a lot of intellectual talk now. That's all over. We will wait, but only until we can get enough guns. What is needed now are guns and more guns. The Judgment of Stokely Carmichael. The American tragedy of Martin Luther King's murder has brought an outpouring of universal reaction. Pope Paul VI urged calm and respect for the principle of brotherly love. Great Britain's Parliament expressed horror at what it termed this brutal and senseless murder. In Africa, where King was a hero, his assassination brought praise for the man from statesmen and predictions of widespread violence in America's cities. U.N. Secretary General Lou Thot, now in Geneva, sent a message of sympathy to Mrs. King. A similar message went to the bereaved widow from Sweden's King Gustav, who presented the Nobel Peace Prize to the civil rights leader back in the year 1964. Another CBS News Washington correspondent, Eric Severide, was one of those with tears in his eyes as he recorded this evaluation of that noted American, Martin Luther King. We have all been told that we live in a bland and cautious time and are bereft of heroes. We have been told that our generation is as embarrassed in the presence of the noble as our ancestors were embarrassed in the presence of the base. 
The life of Martin Luther King denies the first assumption. The reaction to his death denies the second. Almost surely, he was the most important American of his time, white or black. He, more than any other man, wielded the cutting edge of history for this time and place. He preached love, so hate, of course, destroyed him, as it destroyed 2,000 years ago the man whose gospel he followed, as it destroyed 20 years ago in India the man whose strategies he adopted. Saints are usually killed by their own people. Dr. King was not. He was not an American Negro. He was a Negro American. As Dr. Abernathy once said of King, he seeks to save the nation and its soul, not just the Negro. King grasped a white man by his shoulder, forced him to turn around, and looked long and hard upon his fellow black American. To some, the sight was frightening. To many others, the landscape of our lives looked richer and full of much greater promise. There are those who proclaim that white society killed Dr. King. Democracy cannot function under such a theory. To blame everyone is to blame no one. Only the Hitlers of this world and their spiritual kin, like young Mr. Carmichael, believe in mass guilt and in genocide as justice. There are those who proclaim that this is a sick society. It is a society containing many sick individuals, white and black, including the moral invalid who fired the shot last night. It is doubtful if this nation has ever before gone into officially proclaimed mourning, its flags everywhere at half-staff, over the death of a private citizen. And this man was a descendant of slaves. This is not the reaction of a sick society, but of a fundamentally healthy society trying desperately to cleanse itself of the one chronic persistent poison in its body. So the label on his life must not be a long day's journey into night, it must be a long night's journey into day. This is Eric Severide in Washington. Now tonight, the vast majority of Americans, black and white, are holding their breath and hoping the poison works its way through our systems quickly and as painlessly as possible. As an outspoken voice for civil rights, Negro entertainer Sammy Davis, Jr., speaking in New York to CBS News reporter Josh Darsa, was one of those urging moderation on his companions. I plead... If there's ever been a black brother or a sister that's ever heard me and felt that maybe I had something to say, I beg them to hold their emotions in check. We cannot desecrate what this man stood for. I think that the, the man who goes out and loots at this point is maybe only two steps lower than the man who shot down King. The black man said to me, I am so angry with my country, I am so upset, and I want to burn down the ghetto that I live in. I can emotionally agree with that, but if he tells me I want to break down a liquor store and loot a liquor store or steal shoes, then I think we're defeating everything that this man stood for. And I think that now is the time for the militant leaders to say, all right, baby, let's hold ourselves. Let's, you're angry, you're mad, man. Let's hold it now and see if Whitey's going to come up with it. Will Whitey come up with it, and will U.S. Negroes wait until he does? These, the questions black and white Americans are asking tonight, both factions poorer, now that Martin Luther King is no longer around 
to help find a peaceful. Welcome back. And uh, that was uh, a series of reports uh, from uh, CBS News on April 5th of 1968. And uh, that evening, uh, the evening news, national news over CBS, uh, we have a audio recording uh, of uh, that uh, report. Uh, and we're going to play that uh, right now. Let's listen in. Direct from our newsroom in New York, in color, this is the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite and Eric Severide in Washington, Steve Rowan in Washington, Dan Rather at the White House, Ike Pappas in Memphis, Bill Plant in Memphis, Peter Burns in Atlanta, John Hart in Cleveland, and Bert Quint in Quezon, South Vietnam. Good evening. The body of Dr. Martin Luther King was returned to his home in Atlanta today as authorities in Memphis expressed confidence that his slayer soon will be captured. President Johnson appealed nationally for calm, asking all citizens to deny violence its victory. Nevertheless, the murder sent a shock wave of violence rolling through the big cities of America, and the worst trouble was in Washington, virtually on the president's doorstep. Late today, the president declared a state of emergency and regular army troops moved into the nation's capital to protect strategic locations from the violence spreading through the city. Steve Rowan reports. A stiff breeze fanned the flames of more than half a dozen fires set by looters along 7th Street. And the wind quickly dispersed the tear gas used by police in their only attempts to stop the looting. The looters were mostly young Negro men and women, as well as boys down to the age of six or seven. They hit the liquor stores first, then went for clothing stores, appliance stores, and other shops. They roamed back and forth across 7th Street, unhindered by the police, cheering as another plate glass window caved in, laughing at each other as they emerged with armloads of loot. There was little talk of Martin Luther King, just an occasional bitter remark from someone, usually someone not involved in the looting, about the white so-and-so who shot the civil rights leader. A few of them were arrested, usually when they ran into the arms of officers with their loot. And as the afternoon wore on, they stripped just about every store along an eight-block stretch of the street, taking more than they could ever use themselves, discarding what didn't fit or wasn't the right color on the sidewalks outside. Half a dozen police cars stood by, and from time to time, a few of the officers would put on their gas masks, take a few canisters of tear gas, and walk up the street, chasing the looters away for a few minutes. But as soon as they passed, the looting continued. From the air, the scene looked unreal. A row of fires in the middle of an otherwise tranquil city. But everyone knows that this city is not tranquil, that a flare-up of violence has been threatening for years. And Mayor Walter Washington moved this afternoon to prevent real violence, real bloodshed, by imposing a curfew on Washington from 5.30 p.m. to 6.30 a.m. This was to have been the weekend for Washington's Cherry Blossom Festival, but all the events of that annual celebration were canceled. A few Negroes complained of police violence, but there was little of it. The officers did take a number of Negroes into police custody, arrested them in the act of looting. 
As the afternoon wore on, one policeman took off his gas mask, looked around and asked if the National Guard had been called. We need them, he said. We can't hold this tonight. We're losing. And indeed, the city of Washington lost much this afternoon. But the troops were called in late in the day, arriving near the White House, from which point they'll fan out. Steve Rowan, CBS News, Washington. The violence was by no means limited to Washington. Detroit tonight is under a curfew, and National Guard troops are on duty there. Guardsmen also have been mobilized in Chicago, where five blocks of predominantly Negro West Madison Avenue were reported to fire, and where looting broke out in the downtown Loop area. And in Boston, where a menacing crowd of young Negroes kept customers trapped in a supermarket for a time, the Guard also is on duty in three cities in North Carolina and two in Tennessee. Last night or today, racial trouble also broke out in such widespread locations as Denver, Colorado, Oakland, California, and Buffalo, New York. At least four persons have been killed in the outbursts and countless more injured or arrested. Black and Decker dealers are having a special spring sale. Huh? There are irresistible values on jigsaws that cut wood, metal, and plastic. There are big savings on circular saws that do anything a hand saw can do. Better, faster. Oh, come on. There are special deals on dual-action sanders for finishing and refinishing beautifully. That's better. The Black & Decker label assures you of the finest power tools made. Spring will be a little great this year. For Cousin Tom, for Uncle Don, for your boss. Men who work with power tools know, for value, performance, and service, you can expect the best from Black & Decker. The crisis in race relations shoved the Vietnam War into the background at the White House today, and President Johnson devoted almost all his time to the problem. CBS News White House correspondent Dan Rather reports. The president canceled plans for a Vietnam strategy conference in Honolulu. General Westmoreland will be in Washington tomorrow instead. Mr. Johnson requested a joint session of Congress for Monday night to discuss civil justice. He proclaimed Sunday a national day of mourning and prayer. These actions followed in rapid succession a White House meeting this morning. The president and 21 of the nation's best-known civil rights leaders. Dr. King's father was invited but could not attend. He sent word he joined the president in calling for law and order. The assembled civil rights leaders went with the president to a memorial service at National Cathedral. The cathedral memorial service was packed. The president's mood was somber and serious all day, before, during, and after his appearance at the cathedral. Back at the White House, Mr. Johnson met again with the civil rights leaders, Chief Justice Warren and House Speaker McCormick included. Negro leaders stated bluntly what they thought should be done, rapid, positive civil rights legislation and spending. The president said bluntly that a continuation of divisiveness and violence would be nothing less than a national catastrophe. The dream of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. has not died with him. Men who are white, men who are black, must 
and will now join together as never in the past to let all the forces of divisiveness know that America shall not be ruled by the bullet, but only by the ballot of free and of just men. Shortly after the President spoke, black smoke from riot fires in downtown Washington drifted over the White House and its half-mast flag. Dan Rather, CBS News, at the White House. Attorney General Ramsey Clark in Memphis said the murder appears to have been the work of one man and there is no evidence of conspiracy. Without elaboration, he said the investigation has spread several hundred miles beyond Tennessee and authorities are very close to an arrest. The fatal shot came from a boarding house across the street from the hotel balcony where Dr. King was standing alone last night. This photograph was made Wednesday. The landlady described the suspect as a white man who registered as John Willard and who had what she described as a silly smile I'll never forget. For film reports, we go to Ike Pappas and Bill Plant in Memphis and Peter Burns in Atlanta. First, Pappas. Eyewitnesses to the assassination say that Dr. King left his room, 306, at the Lorraine Hotel just before dinner to get some air. He walked over to the railing at this spot and noticing some friends below, he leaned over and began to speak with them. Police say 205 feet away, in a window in a flop house, the assassin waited, leaning forward to brace his arms on the window ledge to steady his rifle. And this was his view. He fired a single shot that hit its target squarely, and then he ran. Down the hallway and along the decrepit stairs turning, he raced out to the street. And as one policeman said, he simply faded. Just at 8 this morning, Dr. Martin Luther King's body was brought to Lyon State for an hour. Hundreds paid their respects during that brief hour. They were old. They were dressed for work. They were almost all black. And for some of them, the experience was just too much. Reverend Ralph Abernathy, Dr. King's closest friend in life. Even forevermore, I am the resurrection and the life, says the Lord. I am the resurrection and the life, says the Lord. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The plane had come from Atlanta, bearing Mrs. King. There were police and National Guardsmen at the airport with rifles and shotguns and riot sticks to hold back the crowd of newsmen and spectators. After some delay, the casket was placed aboard for the last journey home to Atlanta. And late today, a judge in Memphis approved the march which Martin Luther King had planned to lead next Monday. 
Burr Plant, CBS News, Memphis. Militants and non-militants stood quietly as Dr. King's wife and four children left the plane for a limousine. The rains had stopped just before the plane arrived. Mayor Allen led the motorcade from the airport through downtown Atlanta to a funeral home just a few blocks from the gold-domed state capitol. And another crowd of 500 waited there. Mrs. King took the children into the home. She met with friends and family to make plans for the funeral. His brother, Reverend A.D. King, came here from Louisville. The acting president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, Reverend Ralph Abernathy, spoke to the people. He, he was a man that did not believe in violence. He yes, believed sir. in nonviolence. Yes, sir. He lived this, he preached this, and this is the way he died. Family sources indicate that funeral services will probably be held on Tuesday in Dr. King's father's church here. Peter Burns, CBS News, Atlanta. With the death of Dr. King, his longtime aide and close friend, the Reverend Ralph Abernathy, becomes head of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Abernathy pledged today to continue to follow the nonviolent philosophy that dominated Dr. King's civil rights activity. Yum, yum, yum. Cool whip. It's new. The first modern topping with that good old-fashioned taste. Comes with. In its own little bowl. It keeps in the refrigerator, ready to serve. All whip. Has lots less calories than whipped cream you make. New from Bird's Eye. Cool whip. Try it. It's the first modern topping with that good old-fashioned taste. Chris Gaynor is never going to be fat. Fat is the end of roses and phone calls and the groovy world of 4 a.m. Fat is the end of life. That's why Chris watches the scales and eats dessert for dessert. Nine calories, sweetened without sugar. Wonderful desserted gelatin. Made by the Jello people for people who love dessert but can't stand the calories. Skip dessert? Ridiculous. Just make dessert desserta. Mrs. Jacqueline Kennedy issued an especially poignant statement saying, I weep for Mrs. King and for her children for this senseless, senseless act of hate. And she prayed that the price Dr. King paid, quote, will make room in people's hearts for love, not hate. In Cleveland, her brother-in-law, Senator Robert Kennedy, also spoke with a special sense of loss. John Hart reports. There was no campaign today. But Senator Kennedy, who had publicly remembered his brother was killed by a white man, wanted to talk about what he said were the terrible truths of our existence. At the Cleveland City Club, Mrs. Kennedy was with him as he spoke of a mindless menace of violence. Some look for scapegoats. Others look for conspiracies. But this much is clear. Violence breeds violence. Repression breeds retaliation. And only a cleansing of our whole society can remove this sickness from our souls. Earlier, thousands of people gathered outside and in the Old Stone Church of Cleveland for a memorial prayer service. Mayor Carl Stokes asked for a continuing. You can kill a man 
but you cannot kill an idea. And the idea and the ideals for which Dr. Martin Luther King stood, for which he lived, and for which he died, will continue to live in this country, will continue to live in this city. And despite the sorrow upon, under which all of us today feel so heavy, there will on the morrow be a resurgence of the confidence that he was right and that we will overcome. was a mixture of sorrow, regret, and concern over what might happen next. Condolences came from presidents, kings, and other heads of state. Pope Paul appealed for calm and said he was profoundly grieved. Britain's parliament expressed horror at what it called this brutal and senseless murder. The Soviet newspaper Esvestia condemned America as a country of violence and racism. Black power advocate Stokely Carmichael, who was very much in evidence last night when trouble started in Washington, today called upon Negroes to avenge Dr. King's death. We have to retaliate, he told a news conference, and the place for that retribution will be in the streets. The House Rules Committee postponed action on the Senate-passed civil rights bill today after failing to muster a quorum. Twenty House Republicans have urged immediate enactment of the bill, bottled up in committee in an argument over whether a compromise should be sought on the measure's strong open housing provision. Longshoremen closed down Atlantic, Great Lakes, and Gulf ports today as a one-day tribute to Dr. King. In a similar move, the National Maritime Union urged its 35,000 member seamen to stay off the job until tomorrow afternoon. The AFL-CIO plans to send a delegation Monday to march in Memphis and another to Dr. King's funeral. Remember? Remember when smoking a reduced tar and nicotine cigarette made you feel all alone in the world? Well, not today. Things have changed. You're not alone anymore. Today, more and more people smoke true filter cigarettes because true satisfies. Satisfies with good taste and reduced tar and nicotine. True filter cigarettes. With the air filtration system, the good feel of a built-in mouthpiece, the good taste, and reduced tar and nicotine. With or without menthol. Shouldn't your brand be true? A strongly worded statement by North Vietnam today may complicate current efforts to arrange talks between Hanoi and Washington. 
CBS News correspondent Charles Collingwood, reporting from Hanoi, says the official government newspaper has called the partial bombing halt insufficient. The North Vietnamese, he said, now appear to be again demanding an end to all air and naval attacks against the North as evidence that Washington really is interested in negotiations. Earlier this week, you'll recall, Hanoi said it would be willing to talk about a complete halt to the bombing. That position was endorsed by the Soviet Union today, but Red China denounced the new round of peace efforts as just another American hoax arranged with Russia's cooperation. Peking said there was only one course for the Vietnamese communists, go on fighting. South Vietnam's President Chu said today he does not think Hanoi is really serious about peace talks. But he said if there are genuine negotiations, his government, and not the United States, will have to play the principal role. Saigon observers said Chu's remarks underlined his regime's concern that any talks might set off a succession of peace moves that would end with U.S. withdrawal from Vietnam. Welcome back. And uh, that was... uh national uh, news report uh, from April 5th of 1968 uh, involving uh, the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., the mass demonstrations and urban rebellions that ensued uh, uh, from uh, April 4th, uh, several days and weeks uh, into the future. And, of course, uh, a reminder about uh, the issue. Uh, which had uh, brought so much scorn on Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and that is his opposition to uh, the U.S. imperialist war in Vietnam. And uh, we've been commemorating the 55th anniversary of the martyrdom of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, It will be officially uh, on Tuesday, uh, April 4th, uh, 2023. And we're going to be winding down our program uh, for today. You've been listening to the Pan-African Journal, the special worldwide radio broadcast for uh, Sunday, April 2nd, uh, 2023. We've been broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. If you'd like to have access to this program, uh, just go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll close out with the music of uh, Wes Montgomery uh, with a live recording entitled Full House from 1962. This is Abayome Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week.
Thank you.